right. How's everyone doing today? Good. All right. So um, first through sixth graders, you're staying here. Anyone below sixth grade and preschoolers, you guys are dismissed for your time of study. Well, we're continuing our sermon series on the untouchables, as we're calling them, which are books that nobody wants to preach. And I feel like I've got a topic that no one wants to preach on. Um, Jordan was asking me the other day, um, like, how, how do you feel about the sermon? I'm like, well, I'm preaching on repentance, and they don't want to hear a sermon on repentance. And I don't even want to preach a sermon on repentance. Um, it's, but here we are. You know, I think that, like, I even told Jordan, I was like, I just love to preach on something really happy and, and fun, but um, <laughs> we need to talk about repentance. Um, it's so close to the heart of God. Um, so the first several weeks, we've been, excuse me, taking time to look at Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and really just looking at how God gave this people, Israel, his law, which we could essentially call the, the living arrangement between Israel and God, how they're going to do life together in the promised land. And the prophets, Joel and really all the prophets for that matter, they come along and they communicate God's heart um, when Israel disobeys this, this living arrangement, um, as it were. So Joel, I'll put all this on screen, but we'll just see if you can, you may not be able to read it. Here's a quick summary of Joel. So basically, the prophet Joel comes on the scene in the, um, the time of Judah's history. We don't know exactly when, but they've just experienced a devastating locust plague. And the economy's just kind of been decimated. People are, are poor and broken. They've, some people have lost everything, especially because this is an agrarian society where if a locust plague comes and tears everything up, you have nothing left. And so he's kind of coming to a, a weak and, and broken people. And there's this message of, of repentance, of coming back to the Lord. And there's this call for a national assembly to get the whole nation together, come to Jerusalem and repent of our sins and draw near to God. And, and then in chapter 2, we find this, this call that there is an invading army coming against uh, Judah now. And they're also described in terms of a locust plague. So... This could be another locust plague, or it could be uh, an invading army kind of poetically described like a locust plague. We're not sure. Um, and then there's this call again to repent, come back to the Lord, and, and then there's this declaration of a coming day when Joel won't be unique, when God will pour out his spirit on all kinds of people, and they're all going to prophesy. And then in Joel chapter um, 3 Joel envisions this coming day when the nations of the earth will be gathered together and God will enter into judgment with them and hold them accountable for their actions. Um, I want to read to you kind of the introduction from Eugene Peterson that he gives um, on Joel. And I just think this is so well said. Peterson says, When disaster strikes, understanding of God is at risk. Unexpected illness or death, national catastrophe, Social disruption, personal loss, plague or epidemic, devastation by flood or drought turn men and women who haven't given God a thought in years into instant theologians. Rumors fly. God is absent. God's angry. God's playing favorites, and I'm not the favorite. God's ineffectual. God's holding a grudge from a long time ago, and now we're paying for it. It's the task of the prophet 
to stand up at such moments of catastrophe and clarify who God is and how he acts. If the prophet is good, that is, accurate and true, the disaster becomes a lever for prying people's lives loose from their sins and setting them free for God. Joel is one of the good ones. He used a current event in Israel as a text to call his people to an immediate awareness that there wasn't a day that went by that they weren't dealing with God. We are always dealing with God. And that's what we forget. And how quickly we forget that. That we're always dealing with God. And God will use events in our lives to remind us of that. That there wasn't a day that went by in your life you weren't dealing with God. I mean, every morning you wake up, after all, you are waking up into God's world. And he'll remind you of this in subtle ways and in large ways. And in this case, a pretty dramatic way. Um, that the breath in your lungs is God's breath in your lungs. And in many ways, God in the book of Joel is confronting Israel's apathy. Israel's apathy over God. So let's read the passage that I want to look at today. It's Joel 2, 12 um, through 14. I'll give you a second to turn there. I'm going to give myself a second to turn there. Joel 2, 12 through 14 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether or not he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. In many ways, the prophets, the Hebrew prophets, could be summed up by their phrase, Shavu el Eloheikim, return to the Lord your God. And that's the phrase that Joel uses here in verse 13. And it's all throughout, come back to God, come back to God, return to the Lord. And that's what the word in the Old Testament for repentance means. It's return, turn around, come back. It's a different kind of idea in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's Come back to God. Just return to him. Um, Jordan and I like to stay current with popular trends going on in the culture right now, which is why for the first time we're watching The Office. And um, we're also just now reading the Harry Potter books, and you know, we're about two decades behind everything. Um, I'm, uh, I'm not completely out of touch, though. I actually just heard about this technological development called the Global Positioning System. It's supposed to be awesome. So check that out. But um, most nights these days, we're kind of um, we kind of jumping into the wizarding world of Harry Potter and Dwight Schrute, and we uh, will kind of uh, watch The Office over dinner and then listen to the audiobook of, of Harry Potter at night. And um, you know, I say this to say, if repentance is basically understood as God depriving you of things you like so that you'll love Him more, then our natural response will be to think that any regular non-Christian activities in our life, that's got to be the kind of things I need to repent of, right? Um, A.K.A. Michael Scott and, and Harry Potter. And so I think it's important to say, maybe on the front end as we talk about repentance, that repentance is a turning away from sin um, and returning to God. 
Now, it may be the case that there are activities in our life that are not explicitly sin, but you can't do that in good faith and conscience. And if, and if that's the case, then for you, it is sin. That's what Paul says in Romans 14. If you can't do that in good faith and conscience, then for you, that's sin. So, so pray about what might be the things in your life. If there's anything in your life that you feel is robbing you of intimacy with God or is, is keeping you from greater faithfulness for God, pray about whether you should leave those things and return to God. But when we use the phrases like um, return to God, or maybe we say things like, um, I feel distant from God. Or we say things like, I've wandered away from God. We should use that kind of language because it's biblical language. Um, but that language of distance from God, what it does is it expresses a truth about how you feel and about how you're currently living your life, right? Um, but it's important that we realize that all that language of distance from God is entirely metaphorical. In reality, you are, and no one is, distant or disconnected from God. You know, I used to think of humanity in two terms. There are people who are in Christ, who are close, potentially close and connected to God, and there are people who are outside of Christ, who are distant and disconnected from God. And maybe you think it's that way too, but that's not entirely biblical. Uh, it's important we keep this passage like this in mind. This is Paul in Acts 17 talking to a group of pagan Greek philosophers. These aren't Christians. He says, and from one man, uh, God, and he made, that's God, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. It isn't the case that people who are outside of Christ are distant and disconnected from God. Your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus is not disconnected from God. Everybody is in God, moving in God, existing in God. The reality is that your unbelieving neighbor is unredeemed and unreconciled. But they're not distant, and they're not disconnected. I think it's important that we, we realize that. Um, those, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever isn't connection to God. It's covenant with God. Believers are in a covenant relationship with God in Christ. So you, you may feel distant from God today. You may feel close to God today. But remember this, regardless of how far or close you feel to God, you are living in God. You're moving in God. Your very being is in God, and you're never outside of him. Not one day of your life. The Spanish mystic uh, John of the Cross said, the soul is lodged in God like a stone is lodged in the earth. The stone has its own unique composition, but it's in the earth, right? That's how we exist and move and live in God. So we need to use the biblical language of um, returning to God, of the prodigal's long walk home from the far country, or you and I setting our hearts on a pilgrimage to God. Um, but just know that what we really mean by all that poetic language 
is that we're recommitting our hearts to God and his ways as we seek to become the person God wants us to be. That's what we mean when we say I'm coming back to God. And hopefully we don't mean something like somehow I've got to claw my way all the way back to God. He's not far from any of us. And that's no more true for you and for me than it was for Hitler. Joel is an interesting prophet. He's interesting because although um, those Israel's obviously going to be guilty of all kinds of sins, Joel doesn't call them out for a single sin in the prophecy, um, which is really interesting. He doesn't say something like, well, I sent the locust, the locust plague against you, uh, God, from, you know, speaking for God, because you were worshiping idols. Or he doesn't say something like, this foreign army is coming against you because you are sinning against your neighbor. Like, there isn't a single sin for which Joel calls them out in the prophecy. And yet this prophecy is all about repentance. Hold that thought for a second. There are times that we need to get specific about sin. Like, let me kind of paint a, a, a scenario for you. Imagine a, a pastor is preaching a sermon to a congregation, and he's preaching on the evils of racism. He's preaching about how, how wrong racism is and how it's not God's heart. And everybody in the church is like totally vibing with the sermon and like, yeah, all two thumbs up. Because let's face it, these days, nobody thinks they're a racist. But then the moment the pastor says, and God loves biracial marriages, well, then people will leave your church. Right? Sometimes we need to get specific about the sin in our lives for God to deal with us. But in the book of Joel, God just wants to talk about their hearts. It's really interesting. So again, even though we can assume they're, they're guilty of all kinds of sin, of, of failing to love their neighbor, of pursuing their own self-interest, of worshiping other things, God doesn't want to talk about any of that in the book of Joel. He just wants to address the sin of their wayward heart. Come back to me. God's saying to your heart this morning. In verse 12, that's what God says. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Now, I was preaching at UAB at Ignite, which is a ministry there that my parents oversee last spring. And I was preaching on repentance. And I, uh, I kind of opened my sermon and I said, um, is there anyone here who's not a Christian? Because I think I would preach this message differently if I knew there were um, non-Christians in the room. And uh, I didn't see any hands raised, and so I said, okay, well, I'm just going to launch in. And I, I preached on repentance, and I basically just talked about repentance as God's, heart's, God's heart for intimacy. That's pretty much what I preached for 30 minutes, is God just wants intimacy with us. And after um, I finished, I was talking to two guys in the back who were from the Secular Humanist Club. So they were atheists. And, um, and I was like, oh, well, uh, I, I didn't, and they actually apparently raised their hands and I just didn't see them. And uh, I said, well, what did y'all think of the, what did you think of the message tonight? And uh, one of the guys said, oh, it was like the kind of stuff I heard growing up in church. And I immediately just felt disappointed in myself. And I just thought like, man, I just did the very best I knew I could. Like to describe repentance as God's desire for intimacy. Like I don't know how much... Harder, I could have tried to push that point home. Uh, but without the Holy Spirit breathing on a human heart, 
the message of repentance will always just sound like legalism. I mean, it just will. And, and it actually sounds like that to you and to me without the Holy Spirit breathing on our hearts, by the way. It even sounds that way to Christians without the Holy Spirit breathing on our hearts. Um, you know, some, sometimes, though, we actually do repentance badly, right? Sometimes we even, we don't do good. We actually just are terrible at it. Um, and a lot of times, um, you know, when Christians tell people to repent, we find ourselves learning less about what God dislikes and more about what they dislike. So exhibit A, surfers, skateboarders, musicians, artists, vegetarians, occupiers, activists, addicts, and fornicators are all going to hell. Repent now. So I'm talking to you vegetarians. You know who you are. You're, you know, I won't call you out, but I will call out the skateboarders in this room. I, I know a few of those. I'm going to cross that off my preaching bucket list. I wanted to call people out in church for their sins. Um, Kathy uh, Ladman, when asked the question, she's a comedian, uh, what is religion? She said, religion is basically guilt with different holidays. That's all religion is. It's just this, this system of guilt and manipulation. And, and when the world hears us talk about repentance, they immediately think that, oh, you want me to take a fresh shot of guilt. And I can come to your system to get absolution and pay into your system to feel better about myself. You create the problem and then you give me the cure. That's all religion is, right? Uh, there's a, a, a joke about a man who had this nagging secret and he just had to get it off his chest. So he went to confessional and he uh, told the priest that for years he'd been stealing wood from the local lumber yard where he worked. How much uh, lumber did you take, the priest asked. Well, I took enough to build my house. <laughs> and my son's house. And my two daughters' houses. Oh, and our house at the lake. Wow, that's, this is pretty serious um, offense. All to think of far-reaching penance. Have you ever thought about doing a retreat? No, Father, I never have. But if you can get the plants, I can get the lumber. <laughs> you know, we, we say we want to repent, but most of the time we're, we're trying to find ways to just do things for God so we can keep coasting, right? Um, so we can kind of assuage our guilt. Um, but, you know, the more we go through life, we, we feel guilty for the things we do and say, and, and we'd like to try to get rid of that, that guilty conscience, um, if only God just didn't care so much about this whole repentance thing. I mean, how awesome would that be? But I get it. Like, I, I'm, I'm happy with the God I'm stuck with. I mean, I, I really am. Don't get me wrong. Like, I mean, I think it'd be kind of cool if God didn't care about repentance. But trust me, like, I'm glad to be strapped with this God. You may think that you would prefer a God who never called you to repent, but you really wouldn't. Because a God who's indifferent towards your repentance is a God who's indifferent towards you. Remember, at the end of the day, repentance is a call home. It's a call away from things that are breeding death in your life and a call back to home. But to the world, all of that sounds like a system of manipulation and well-placed guilt holidays. But if you know the heart of God, you know that's not the case. And so my question is, do you know the heart of God? I'm not sure I do a lot of the time. 
but I'm leaning to listen, hearing his whispers of his desire for me to come back to him in ways that I've strayed. In the words of Joel, to rend my heart and not my garment, to give God the deepest parts of me and not just things that are external to me. You know, I think even as we are here for Father's Day, um, that's really what a good father is after. You know, we think of verses like Malachi 4, 6, that God says, I'm going to restore in that coming day the, the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Um, that a good father, and I think in Joel we have God's father's heart on display, wants the hearts of his children. That God's, in Joel, it's fascinating, he's not even talking about performance. It's not a... Like, I think it's astounding that Joel doesn't name a single performance or behavior problem. God's just saying, I want your hearts. Because whatever sin may be in Judah's life at this time, it all comes back to a matter of the heart, right? Whatever it may be, it, that's what the root is. And I think the kind of fathers we're hoping to be and seeking to be and hopefully becoming more are the ones who want our kids' hearts. That's the kind of father I want to be. Um, the people that Joel spoke this prophetic message to are people that have experienced a lot of loss. And um, obviously, we haven't just experienced an Alabama locust plague. Now, there's not a foreign um, invasion coming against America, at least I hope not. And so we can't say, obviously, by any means that our situation is identical to theirs. But in every generation, God's calling hearts to come home, to come back to him, to return to him. So in that sense, God is speaking through this prophecy to us today. Let me read you this quote by Peterson again. I love this. He says, Joel's prophetic words continue to reverberate down the generations, making the ultimate connection between anything, small or large, that disrupts our daily routine and God giving us fresh opportunity to reorient our lives in faithful obedience. Then he says this, Joel gives us opportunity for deathbed repentance before we die, while there's still time and space for a lot of good living to the glory of God. That's what Joel's about. So as I think about how this confronts us, maybe me and maybe you, is I would say this, Pay attention to the ways that God might be disrupting your daily routine and helping you see the connection between all of that and the God that you're always dealing with. And that can be pain, and it often is pain, let's be honest, right? It doesn't have to be pain, though, in your life. God's just trying to help you find the connection again between the fact that you live and move and have your being with him, you're always dwelling and dealing with him in your daily life. And, and how those connections are made in your mind and in your heart is going to look so different for all of you in the room, right? That's why I refuse to give you any kind of prescription of how you make those connections <laughs> because it will be so different for every one of you. But pay attention to how God might be doing that in your life. Verse 13 Joel's still speaking on God's behalf, saying, and rend your hearts and not your garments. And then Joel gives his commentary. 
Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. I heard a preacher recently named Jamin Rowland say, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not repentance that leads to the kindness of God. You see, we get it all wrong, don't we? Like, if I can just repent enough, I can turn God's frown upside down. He'll like me again. And Joel's saying here, guys, I'm calling you to repent because God's really kind. He's really gracious. He's really merciful. He doesn't get angry quickly. And he just keeps loving steadfastly. Repent because he's kind. Um, I'm going to paint a, a, a hypothetical scenario for you, and I'll keep this tame because we have kids in the room. Um, so imagine a woman who is trapped. She's been trafficked, and she's in this, this place of bondage. And one day a man sees her, and his, he, he doesn't see her for what he can get from her. His heart just goes out to this woman who's in this place of bondage and being used. And he devises a plan to, to liberate her. So one night, he, he sneaks in to the place where she's being kept. We'll just say he beats down a pimp in his way, just to make the story cooler. <laughs> he grabs this woman, and he sneaks, sneaks away with her. And not only does he, does he get her out of that, that awful situation that she wanted to be free from, but he's made all these provisions for her and resources that he's gathered together, and a community she can come to, an opportunity for her to, to live and thrive and start a new life and a new place that's going to be amazing. And then, after a few weeks, this woman starts saying, it wasn't that man, but it was this other man who did all this for me. And starts giving the credit for everything that's happened for her to another person. That's exactly what Israel did to God after the Exodus. God came to Egypt, beat the snot out of the Egyptians ten times over, took his people out of the wilderness where they worshipped him. Moses goes up on the mountain for several weeks to hear from God about the new living arrangement of how they're going to do life together in this awesome promised land that they're going to get. And within a few weeks, the people of Israel say, what's happened to this guy Moses and his God? I guess they just left. And so Aaron why don't you make for us some gods who will go before us? And Aaron takes the gold that they pillaged from Egypt and makes this golden calf. And do you remember what they say? They say, Israel, here are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they literally give the credit for their deliverance to this golden calf. And Aaron tries to salvage the situation and says, and tomorrow we'll have a festival for Yahweh. Like, we can kind of make him happy too or something. It's just awful. And, and, and Moses is up there on the mountain with God, and God says, Moses, do you realize what's happening down the hill? God, and God's heart is so broken over the depth and the immediacy of their betrayal and treachery towards him. That's just incredible. That he says, Moses, I'm going I'm to destroy them and start over with you. You're an Israelite. I'll fulfill the promises through you. You're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can make this work through you. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, and God relents in sending disaster. He spares them incredibly. And then not only does God spare them, but he still gives them the promised land. He says, 
I'm not going to kill you, and I'm going to give you the. I'm still going to give you the promised land. You think they would have forfeited that, right? You think they would have been happy enough just to have their life. They still get the promised land, but then God says, "But I'm not going to go with you because if I go with this stiff-necked, rebellious people, I'll break out and destroy them." And Moses says, "God, no." Is it not in your going with us that we're distinct and a special people in the earth? And God says, okay, I'll go with you. God puts himself, he he puts his heart in jeopardy because he knows that by choosing to go with this stiff-necked and rebellious people, they're going to wound me time and time again, but I'm choosing to put myself in a relationship that will be painful for me so I can stay with them. So not only does God not destroy them, he still gives them land, and he still goes with them. And in Exodus 33, Moses says, God, who are you? Show me your glory. You're amazing, Lord. And God says, okay, nobody can see my face and live, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock, and I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. That's what God does. He puts Moses in this rock, and his goodness just showers past Moses. And then in Exodus 34, as the story continues, it says that God's presence came and stood next to Moses, and the Lord declared his name, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and sin and transgression and guilt, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And that declaration of God's name from Exodus 34, it so marked the consciousness of the nation of Israel for hundreds of years to come that you'll find psalmists quoting that. You'll find prophets like Joel in this passage quoting that. You'll find their kings, their poets, all over and over again realizing he is the God of Exodus 34. In that moment where we deserve nothing but death, we got life, a land, and the presence of God. This is his glory. This is his goodness. And that's the kind of call for repentance that Joel is declaring to his people. He's the Exodus 34 God to them and to us. Switching gears a little bit, Mumford and Sons. But I think it's super relevant, actually. I, I, have y'all ever heard the song, Roll Away Your Stone? I love this, this, these words from Mumford and Sons. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive at every start. That's the kind of grace with which God is reaching out to you and to me. Verse 14 says, Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. Um, If we turn, God might turn and relent from sinning disaster, Joel says. You know, I appreciate the honesty of, of this verse. Verse 14, who knows? Because the more I go through my Christian life, the less sure I am about anything God will or won't do. I mean, how many of y'all are at that point where you're just done trying to predict what God's going to do next? As for the rest of you, good luck. You may get like a 1 out of 10 ratio, and that, I don't know, that might be enough for you. Um, who knows, Joel says. Who knows what God will do? And I can just imagine... Uh, Judas saying something like, Joel, what do you mean, who knows what God will do? You're the prophet, Joel. You're supposed to know what God's going to do. Well, God's message to us is return to the Lord your God. That's what we can do. After that, 
Who knows what God will do? He, he may relent and leave a blessing behind for us. He may do that. And I can just imagine Israel saying, well, Joel, we need you to guarantee that if we repent, God will cancel his judgment against us. To which I can imagine Joel saying something like, well, who do you think God is? I mean, and who do you think I am? Well, you're a prophet, Joel. So what? I'm trying to learn about this infinite God just like you are. He may crush you for your sins and leave a blessing behind for your enemies. What? Yeah, God may do that. But he is the God of Exodus 34. So I'm betting on his mercy towards us. I wouldn't be at all surprised if if we turn to the Lord, he spares us the suffering to come and leaves a blessing for us instead. You know, there's a humility about the prophet Joel that really speaks to me. Because although he's got a word from God that he's giving to the people, he doesn't even try to predict what God's going to do next. He doesn't even try to pretend that he has all the answers. Now, as we read on in the prophetic narrative of Joel, we find that um, the nation responds in this national repentance, and God sees it, and he spares them the judgment to come. And he actually leaves a blessing behind for them. In Joel 2.19, God says, I'm sending you grain and wine and oil, which is ancient speak for I'm restoring your fortunes. Life and relationship with God is mysterious, isn't it? As we read at the beginning of this sermon um, from Peterson, whether we admit it or not, we're always dealing with God. You and I can't easily predict what God's going to do next in our life, right? And that's either, I'll say this, really frustrating for you or liberating for you. And I think in some ways your perspective, your faith, and I'm going to say this, even your personality <laughs> might partly um, be how you respond to that. Uh, if you're the kind of person who's type A and you need to know what's next and have a plan for what's next, God has a special grace for you. <laughs> and there's an extra measure of grace available for you, um, I, I believe. Um, but our... Our greatest confidence in God is not in our ability to predict what God's going to do next. Our greatest confidence in what, is in what God has done for us in Christ. That's not cliche. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. Verse 14 says, again, who knows whether or not he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. And I think it's here that we see the gospel, guys. Because God did not relent towards his son, even when he asked to be spared the cup of his crucifixion. Jesus surrendered to the will of the Father, and he was blanketed not by a locust plague, but by the plague of our sin. And because God did not relent in punishing his son for our sin, we're spared the wrath to come. And like his father, Jesus came and left a blessing behind a blessing that Joel talks about later in Joel chapter 2 and that Peter talks about in Acts chapter 2. What's that blessing? Say it. Holy Spirit, amen. 
the Holy Spirit, by which we, like Joel, stand and hear and declare God's prophetic call for hearts to come home, to return, to come back to God, and what we mean by that. And this is what Peter does in, at Pentecost when he preaches from the book of Joel and says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, quoting Joel 2.32. Jesus came and, and left this, brought this blessing, and now men and women, rich and poor, can prophesy of God, dream of God, receive visions of God. That's the hope into which Joel glimpsed. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Can we just stand to go into worship, back into worship? Um, I just want to give you a second just to quiet your heart before the Lord and just begin asking him, Lord, what are ways in which I can come back to you, return to you? How might you be calling this heart home, coming back to you? As the team just begins playing, I just want to invite you just dialogue with the Lord over that. Ask him, Holy Spirit, what are the ways in which you might be disrupting my routine and showing me the way I'm always dealing with you, whether I recognize it or not? If you'd like prayer today, just come on up here to the front and stand up here and we'll have people come around you and pray for you. Let's just draw near to the Lord today. And again, I do want to encourage you, if you'd like prayer, just come on up and we'll have teams pray for you.